kicking it with Kendrick. Mm. We love that acting. You're kicking it with Kendrick, but not that Kendrick. Nah, nah. You're kicking it with Kendrick. Yeah, Twilight gets it. Woo. You're kicking it with Kendrick. Pitch perfect singing. Oh, yeah, she's on the go. How many actors got that glow? Singing and acting, I don't know. Not even Leo's got that flow. Musicals and movies more. All the talents out the door. We're seeing what she's got in store. Yeah, and it's time to stop the show. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Kicking It With Kendrick. Well, I am Pierre and I'm joined as always by uh, my co-host Jeff. Jeff, what's up? Hey Pierre, I just saw the movie we're going to talk about today. I don't want to spoil it just yet, but it is one of my favorite movies. So I'm very excited today. Yeah, well, no, have we done an animated movie yet on Kicking It With Kendrick? Yeah, we, we just talked about Trolls. Yeah, never mind, we did. Well, I guess for a little more animation experience, because me and Jeff are not animators. We have turned to someone that might have a little more experience. And when I say might, I mean definitely. We are joined by our guest here, Johnny, a.k.a. Pencil. Hello, Johnny. Hi. Nice to be here. It's been a while since I've been in this type of setting, but I'm very you know, flattered and very honored to be here with you guys. Thank you so oh, much yeah. for coming on our show. Johnny, we, you are, I believe, an animator from what I have heard. Or a student of animation? I mean, probably both. Yes. Yeah. I well, am, what is your experience with animation so far? Well, um, my experience on animation is, um, well, I am a junior, soon to be a senior in a couple of semesters at a school called Columbia College Chicago. It is a commercial from what I've known. Now that I've, now that my professor told me that it's not just an art school, it's a commercial art school. So it, um, I, I study traditional animation there. So um, my experience of animation is an experience where you would have to kind of sit down, create a number of hours for yourself, and really study it by the, the men and women who were in the animation industry. And like, they'll be able to guide you in the right direction there's literally a whole bunch of books and now online courses for it and you know and i'm taking one step at a time to be you know an animator that i want to be but also you know gaining the expertise from those guys so yeah I just wanted to step back on something you said a little earlier. You originally thought it was an, that Columbia was an art school, but it's a commercial art school. I at first I didn't know I, I had the exact same <laughs> reaction you got. I was like, "What? What's the difference?" But it seems that I think what he means by commercial is pretty much kind of just learning from from what I've got from that definition, which is kind of learning the the ins and outs of like what to do to get prepared for it mm-hmm. when you're going into the animation industry. It's just kind of learning the basic of basics of what it is first. And then once you get into the meat of it, you start to learn how to create portfolios and, you know, actually contacting, you know, companies to you know, get a better experience and knowledge of where you're at, of mm-hmm. where you want to be. So it's when, when like 
the difference of art school is where you're actually, you know, putting down the hours and learning, you know, your craft, Mm -hmm. you know. But sometimes I ask, what does a psychology class have to have to really do with what I'm trying to learn? Gotcha. So in terms of, you know, when you say what you're trying to learn, I guess I'm interested, like, what brought you to animation? Or I guess what brought you to art, but specifically to animation? What made you want to be an animator? Maybe that's a big question. Yeah, I get this a lot from like friends that I just known and people that really want to get to know me. They ask me this question a lot. So how I got into animation, just to make it sweet and simple, I grew up with a lot of um, VHS tapes. VHS tapes of, you know, pretty much any animated film that really came out at that time and then current and then the current time. Mm-hmm. I remember like my my father having a whole big shelves of DVDs and VHS tapes and stuff like that. And the animated film category was one of them. So like, but the biggest like uh, inspiration I got was just watching cartoons in general. You know, I remember my father recording like a whole bunch of Tom and Jerry shorts. And he would put that on for me. And I would just kind of just get dazed out because like of how creative and how funny Tom and Jerry was. Mm-hmm. And as, I, as I'm at this age, I'm still laughing at Tom and Jerry shorts to this day because, you know, there's something about it that just really carries uh, like a little bit of nostalgia for me. And as I got older, sure, animation was fun to look at, but I, like, I was really invested. I was like, I love this so much. Like, how did, how did this all get made and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest inspirations I got were, were two animated films that I hold dear to my heart, The Road to El Dorado and The Emperor's New Groove, both films that came out in 2000, interestingly enough. Two of my favorites. Yeah. The Road to El Dorado has, like, when it comes to those films, if I can compare them, El Dorado, it beats Emperor's New Groove by, like... Wow. Two points, <laughs> but both do carry something that I can look at and gain ins- inspiration by a hundred times over. And those films really made me want to be oh, like, okay, this is what I'm. This is what I want to be is mm-hmm. creating stories that not only have a good story plot, but also making it very visually appealing and the way that both films were animated with each character unit you know every character had a whole bunch of life Mm -hmm. you know and these were films that i watched early on i didn't watch like what i what i would call the overrated you know catalog of you know beauty and the beast and the lion king and you know what else aladdin like, I didn't even see those films. Well, I actually saw Aladdin first. Then I started to see Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King. I remember watching the Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King on the same day. Hmm, okay. On When I was six years old. I didn't get to see those films when I was six or seven. And I also grew up with Pixar films. Now, those were big inspirations for me as well when it came to, like, 
actual masterful storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, Toy Story 2, I get into a lot of heated arguments with like my personal friends of mine. Like, what's the best Pixar film? And I say Toy Story 2. And they're like, what the hell? I'm like, I'm like, they're finding Nemo, Wally. I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> like Toy Story 2 is like, it's more, it's more fleshed out. It was, it was, it's more, it's, and this is coming from my own personal experience of how I watched it and how I had fun with it. That and the fact that both Toy Story and Toy Story 2 are still staying strong with that Rotten Tomatoes score. Right. (laughs) At 100%. So you got to admit, those are two quality films. So like, yeah. Well, Toy Story 2 didn't win an Annie for Best Feature for nothing. It did not. Yeah, it well, it, well, it did. Yeah, yeah, so it did. It, I mean, it did win the Annie for Best Feature. I'm saying it didn't win yeah, it for nothing. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. I almost got confused. Yeah, but it did. It did. It, mm-hmm. And it deserved it. And I feel like when I look at, like, Oscar films, well, not necessarily Oscar films around that time, but just animated films, I think about like what did it take 2001 to get to where we are because it seems like you know the academy was like okay we're seeing a lot of animation popping off like popping off right now and we need to find a little bit of a home for it when I felt like they should have done that a long time ago well I thought it was specifically interesting that you said that you mentioned like Aladdin and Lion King and Beauty and the Beast as being overrated. And uh-huh. I was wondering, and I thought that was kind of interesting that you said like 2000 is where you have your fond memories of animated movies. And like, sure, I guess maybe I think I might've been the only one that was even born when uh, out of the three of us, when Beauty and the Beast came out, but like so many people point to the Disney Renaissance as like, I mean, it's called the Disney Renaissance for one thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's interesting to hear you sort of skip past that and just call that overrated. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people have a lot of raised eyebrows when I, you know, talk about it in group settings Mm -hmm. of those films being overrated, like Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin. Even Mulan is now considered overrated. At first, I didn't think it was, but now it kind of is. And also... When it comes to other overrated Disney films, Frozen and Rick and Ralph are kind of like in the in the ballpark, in especially Frozen, being you know the box office queen. So, so wow. they both so all those films plus the Renaissance are both mashed up together because of marketing and stuff like that, and you know selling merch and stuff like that. But when I think about you know The Empress New Groove, Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Brother Bear, I won't really say Home on the Range because that was kind of a slightly weaker film, mm-hmm. but tre- and but Treasure Planet also. Treasure Planet is a big is a big one. All those films that I mentioned released from the time frame of 2000 to 2002 to 4. Now, mm-hmm. it's interesting how that particular studio at Disney were popping out box office babies and then all of a sudden uh creatives from the animations company really had this idea that i feel like 
is the best and then didn't get as much love from critics and we had to wait almost 17 years to call it a cult classic you know was Especially that uh, when, Treasure Planet or just all of those movies? Uh, just all of them. You know, The Emperor's New Groove was, you know, it was inching by the hair when it came mm. to reception. It was the thing that I love about The Emperor's New Groove is what critics, you know, who give it a compliment is a really enjoyable family film. And they are right. That film is for the whole family not just yourself and your friends. It's for just a, a wide group of people watching that film all at once. Mm-hmm. And El Dorado is a film that you would watch with like your drinking buddies and yeah. stuff like that. But it's still it's still a good film to even just like skim through. And El Dorado has a very interesting interesting history. Because on March 31st of 2020, that year, it, it marked the anniversary of the film. And I did a drawing on it, mm-hmm. um, you know, just like bringing my awareness to how much it saved, saved my life personally, you know. And, and watching that film always keeps me going creatively. Mm-hmm. And how I draw, you know, take, it, that film really takes the cake of just being myself you know, creatively. And I spoke with one of the original directors that were there for a brief time. And his name is Will Finn. Now, Will Finn was also at Disney. He animated uh, Cogsworth. He animated uh, one of the gargoyles of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay. And then he, uh, he animated Iago. And he oh. went to DreamWorks for a brief time to direct El Dorado but left because of a man named Jeffrey Katzenberg who was being a little bit too difficult. (laughs) And I think Jeffrey Katzenberg is kind of, like, I appreciate the man's genius, but when it comes to that, when it comes to that, it turns into an ego. And that ego really shined in the production of that film. And a lot of animators from that film don't really talk about it. Because of how strenuous that production was, but there are some animators that said we had a rather really solid crew, and by looking at the credits of the film, they really did. Mm-hmm. That whole crew on that film, from the Prince of Egypt to like Sinbad, you know, they they really had a good crew going on them. They and a lot of people who were working on that crew left Disney in late 1998 or 97 to like you know kind of just build DreamWorks and kind of make DreamWorks walk. Was that the the same exodus of Disney animators that led to Shrek? Like, it wasn't the same animators, clearly, but, like, was it the same, you know, time frame, basically? Like, what 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 do you mean by that? Well, I know that, like, famously, the movie Shrek was kind of... Put in the middle finger on Disney? Disney, specifically, yeah. And I know that that was because there were a lot of pre, a lot of people working on that production who had just left Disney because of someone. I thought it was Jeff Katzenberg, but no, he's the one that went to DreamWorks. So I don't. Yeah, he exactly he's the one. Was. Yeah, he and Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. They all those three they developed DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to Jeffrey Katzenberg specifically, he is kind of like the leader of that whole the whole beginning of the company. And mm-hmm. Katzenberg had a really uh, interesting, what he called, um, I saw this in like an interview that he was doing in a college. He said that he had this like, this marriage <laughs> with like another production manager named Michael Eisner. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, gotcha. Just to shorten things out, like they didn't really see eye to eye on certain things. And uh, Michael Eisner had the bigger, you know, had the upper hand on Jeffrey when it came Mm -hmm. to like status and ranking at Disney at the time. So I believe that Jeffrey Ketzenberg, he either left or quit. My knowledge on Jeffrey Ketzenberg, he's, he's very, he's very egotistical because like sometimes the story does, you know, shift and turn. He -hmm. says that he quit, but a lot of people said that he got fired. But he made enough money to get a company and he said 48 days. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was a good deal. So what I wanted to follow up with is we've talked a lot about animation 20 years ago. What what do you think of animation today? Like the animation industry as a whole, are you happy with how it's evolved in 20 years? Or, you know, what what are your thoughts? This is an interesting question because I actually talked to my professor about it. I actually asked him this question, mm-hmm. but it was worded differently. I asked him, like, do you feel that uh, like modern day animation is doing something of value? And I guess we can both agree that in my stance on it, when it comes to animation as of right now, when it comes to the technical side and what we can do with it, we have brought more awareness to it. We have brought more, you know, sophistication and sort of like a very interesting alignment to how we can view things in our own head and put it on paper or put it on a, on a canvas and mm-hmm. make it move and call it a story. And that's what I really appreciate, like where we came from 20 years ago to now it's a huge achievement, and I really do appreciate where animation is going mm-hmm. on the technical side. But the thing that I'm really looking for that would make the experience in the animation in- animation industry more of a saint, <laughs> if you will, right. is good storytelling. A lot of animated films and a lot of animation animation production on television, it seems like a lot of the, you know, the episodes or just features I've seen, I don't know, it seems to be very mediocre, you know, and DreamWorks and Illumination, don't get me started on the Illumination. It's tedious to watch, you know, all of that work go to a story that is just flatlining boring and not really pushing any boundaries. And I actually had a class of history of animation that in the beginning, you know, animation really wasn't for kids. Animation was just a place for, you know, creatives to, you know, create their own business and and just have their own nine to five job instead of actually a, doing a nine to five job themselves. Mm-hmm. And then it evolved to like, okay, I have children in my house. 
they need to be quiet <laughs> while I'm working. And I was telling my friend this, and she chastised me, like, don't say that. And I'm like, but it's true, though. Like, okay, let me shut this boy or shut this girl up. Like, what do they need to watch for me to, you know, do everything else that's outside? And, you know, cartoons became children-based. Mm-hmm. And a lot of animated films became children-based and teenage-based as well. Well, now we're getting, at this time, we're getting into the teenage-based and more adult now. And I feel like now we have a perfect place in this generation now to have balance. When it comes to like children's shows and children's movies and adult films and adult movies, there's a certain balance. But they do have their their own way of weighing things out, especially mm-hmm. on the adult side, because since that the beginning, the the weight of cartoon based shows and animated films for children was way up more than adult content Mm -hmm. you know because of that it was kind of hard for adult work to even reach that level but now it seems like it's dangling both are dangling up and down up and down up and down it all depends on how a certain big named company feels about it and what they need Yeah, I've ranted privately about it to a lot of friends. I don't know if I've ever said it on the podcast, but like I recently watched the presentation of the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and um, they just opened their new museum. And in their museum, they have a part devoted to animation. And when they introduced that part in their special about the museum, they said, you know, animation has a really problematic history. It used to be really racist, but thank God we have Walt Disney and Hayao Miyazaki. And I was like, wow, just condensing the entire history of animation into racism right to Walt Disney. Great. Yeah, it was something... I jokingly would say no comment, but <laughs> not. I've never heard of this. This is new to me. So, yeah. The main point that I want to get at is that the biggest movie critical body, I guess, in the world, or at least in the United States, the American Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, clearly does not take animation seriously even a little bit. And, like, nowhere is it more obvious than in their special where they introduced this museum but like i feel like that's a very that's a really common opinion because basically what they're saying with that is animation is disney and the japanese guy who makes movies for little girls and like let me just stop you right there when i hear that statement now it kind of pisses me off because it what about windsor mckay and he was the man who literally kind of just shape-shifted animation to be what it is and what about the Fleischer brothers you know the who the men who created Popeye and also freaking invented rotoscoping what so Disney is not even in the see like that's that's the that's the thing that I don't really like about Hollywood and animation in a in a room because like it seems like Hollywood is, is like literally putting their hand on animation space like yeah I'm popular and you're just here mm-hmm. you're just here to, to make me look good and yeah. 
Well, the name that immediately stands out for me as someone they omitted is Isao Takahata, the other guy who helped found Studio Ghibli and like made yeah. some of its best movies too. Absolutely. They don't you know, they don't talk about Ub Iwerks because this man literally animated Walt Disney's all his short films. Mm-hmm. They don't give him enough credit, to be honest. You just put all that credit on Walt Disney when he really didn't do much. When it comes to the technical side of animation, he was just given the go-ahead. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, we can give him credit for creating his own company and making technology to create more and have it evolve in a way animation is now but i feel like we shouldn't depend on disney and miyazaki Mm -hmm. the dependence on just one person isn't really all that good either i feel like all of these people who made animation what it was should be recognized and it seems like disney and miyazaki from that from what you said I don't know. That's just the, the, I wouldn't say bias, but just, that's just the, I think the it's mindset just willful that they ignorance. have. Yeah, ignorance. That's the perfect word to describe that. Well, I hate to start cutting us short, but we are just about out of time. So I got one more quick question before we go to a break here, which is, okay. well, I guess there, this is a two part question. One of my questions is, what do you think of Leica Studios, who made the movie that we're going to talk about today? And okay. the other question I had is like, are there studios or animators that you want to point people to who are to condense a sentence, everything into like two words, basically doing it right? Like, who are some really good animators right now that we should be paying attention to? Oh, that's a good Jesus one. Christ. That's that's a good one. Leica, for the first one, a lot of people don't know this, but Leica, I knew a little bit of it. The biggest thing that I knew about Leica and like the starting point of its company is that the father of Travis Knight, who was the director of um, Kubo and the Two Strings, mm-hmm. which is one of my favorites, the father of Travis is the man who founded Nike. And I was like, what? <laughs> so that was, so you mean to tell me that was a huge, like this man is a freaking billionaire and he put a little something his father helped Travis from the investment to make Leica be what it is. And then uh, they had to find a director and they found the man who directed A Nightmare Before Christmas to make Coraline. And then it just went from there. Sorry, just because people don't know this sometimes, Tim Burton did not direct the I, I do Christmas. not. It was Henry I do Selleck. not like... When people say this Tim Burton, this Tim Burton, I'm like, ha, 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 ha. it's barely oh, Tim Burton. Boy. He wrote a poem, and he was a producer. Oh boy! We can't pretend that he wasn't involved, but he wasn't as involved as right. people like to think. I don't think he was really involved in that film Nine when it came out. Oh yeah, that's true. There was that. I don't. Yeah, I don't know when. He yeah, had I, that every either. time I look I at that film, I was like, yeah, he was a producer, and I look at his name, I was like, did you really have any creative like touch in this film? Probably not. But when it comes to Leica, I really do appreciate sort of like the secondary home for stop motion animation. And it seems like mm-hmm. from what I've learned, Leica, it's, it, it looks like a very positive space to let loose to 
um, work hard and develop worlds that we've never seen before. And when I call it a second home, I've like there's another anime, a stop motion animation company, and it's called Armin, where uh, they made Wallace and Gromit, Chicken Run, Flushed Away. And I feel like that's one of the first homes of it. And then Laika became more, f- like the difference between Ardman and Laika is that Laika, it has more fluidity. It has mm-hmm. more life towards the characters. It has more beautiful environments, whereas Ardman, it's very quick-witted. And you kind of know their style by now, judging by how many Wallace and Gromit shorts are out there. Right. You know, but still... The complement of that company surrounds it, and Leica is is really important because I feel like Kubo and the Two Strings that was a big achievement when it comes to the visuals. Mm-hmm. What they did on that film was just breathtakingly stunning. Interesting fact is that Kubo and the Two Strings was the second animated movie ever nominated for Best VFX for vi- at yeah, the Oscars. Yeah, visual effects, and that blew my mind i was like wow it's rare because and that was and that was nightmare before christmas that was the first one and that Mm -hmm. was in 1993 yeah that was years and years like decades later and when i look at that i was like why i was like we need more awareness to like animated films getting that nomination specifically Mm -hmm. if you want to compliment it more i mean to be honest like when I think of like Spider Verse and stuff like that, I feel like they should be in that bracket. You know, yeah. that film was stunning as well. But going back on Leica, every film that they put out, and there's only one film that I didn't see, and it was called The uh, Box Trolls. Great movie, by the way. I haven't seen Missing Link yet. Mm-hmm. I've pretty much seen the majority, but The Box Trolls and Missing Link are the films that I haven't seen. And Missing Link was the latest one they put out yeah but overall even if i didn't see the film i looked at the trailers and stuff like that i'm like yeah these these guys they're good to go Mm -hmm. with creating worlds that surprise both young and old audiences are there any current animators or studios right now that you think people don't appreciate enough that they should or that like you want to shout out First off, there is a company, then and there's then there's going to be an animator that I'm going to point out, and I say his name a lot to the point where I feel like I'm married to him. So, <laughs> the studio that I really want to give a huge thanks and a shout out to is SBA. It's uh, it's Sergio Pablos Animation. Okay. Now Sergio Pablos has also a Disney background. He animated uh, Tantor, the elephant on Tarzan, Hades from Hercules. He was on that unit. And he's like well known for animating Dr. Doppler from Treasure Planet. And then he created, and I, this is big, like to me, like, and he's, st- and I feel like he's still kind of making money off of this. And he, he kind of created the whole story of Despicable Me. He pretty much created the whole foundation. Mm-hmm. of how that film went yeah he was a big part of that and then he created a story another story which was Smallfoot. and then after that he decided to make his own studio and that's how klaus was born and that studio really brought out 
a lot of animators that worked in the industry, even at DreamWorks in its heyday, and also Disney at its heyday in the late 1990s and 2000s, they came, they kind of came from the dead and just, it was like a whole family of animators kind of coming back and working on this film. And you see old and new faces and names in the crew. Mm-hmm. And I really give that studio a shout out simply because that studio saved traditional animation in a way and made it better than it ever was. And it was robbed. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. Klaus was robbed from the Oscars that year. I was very disappointed because Klaus was dominating the Annie's and then the BAFTAs. And when I, when we were doing the death race that year, I was like, okay, the BAFTAs do kind of show us who the winner is for the Oscars. Right. So I was like, okay, BAFTAs, Klaus won, locked in. Nope. Toy Story 4. There was not a single animated movie that was nominated that year that was on the level of Klaus. Like everything Mm. else was not even the, I mean, I think that was a pretty strong year for even for animated feature contenders. It was, it was a strong year. But like Klaus was so much better than everything else there. Dude, I'm telling you, like I'm, I'm going to be watching the film in the holiday season and I have to like, internally cry to just know (laughs) to just know that it didn't win it's now just a nomination every time i look at it i'm just like now here's the thing like toy story 4 wasn't a bad movie but it wasn't as strong as klaus was and maybe it hits home for me because i grew up with traditional animated films first and you know that was a whole big deal but the animator that i want also want to shout out is a man who is now a horse in Adventure Time. Uh, his name is James Baxter. Now, James okay. Baxter is literally what a lot of animators that worked with him, they call him a 3D camera in, tra- in the traditional anima- animation sense. He is a 3D camera. He is a rotoscope. And he is so detailed on what he does, you know, if you look at his background, he did Moses, Prince of Egypt, Tulio okay. from El Dorado. He did Spirit. That's what he's really known for, Spirit, Stallion, Cimarron. That's why he's a horse in Adventure Time. And then you got Sinbad, and then he uh, created his own animation studio. He was the supervisor of the animated sequence of Enchanted. And then he did a okay. scene on Curious George. And then his studio kind of shut down, and he kind of just went askew and went to 3D animation. So on How to Train Your Dragon 2, he animated, he was a supervisor of uh, Pickup's mother, uh, Mm -hmm. Valka, and then he kind of went back to traditional animation, and he went on Klaus. He was with Klaus. He was on the Klaus crew, and he animated Jesper. Oh, all of those characters, like, very animated characters. Like, they move around a lot. They have very fluid movements. When you save a 3D camera, and, like, you compare him to rotoscoping, like, I, I get it, because with rotoscoping, like, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, like, filming someone and then animating over them, and yeah. you end up with, like, really fluid movement because of that, and, mm-hmm. like, El Dorado isn't rotoscoped, but all of those movements, they're very excitable, there's so much happening, 
you get these characters that are very dynamic. So yeah, yeah that's cool and the to thing know that, that I love about James Baxter is that animators really try to emulate him. And me personally, I feel like he's my celebrity. Okay, mm-hmm. in the animation industry, he's he's someone that I kind of look up to, and I love the fact that animators who know him and has worked with him, they try to work around him. You know, when it comes to scenes, I love how they try to sort of take bits and pieces of how he does his work. I'm still trying to crack the code as we, you know, as we speak, you know, I need to look more into how he, you know, breaks down everything, you know, because of how school is and stuff like that, if I have time, but this man is a genius and those little simple things that he learned in the eighties, he, he literally broke the rules. And then you look at a, the Emperor's New Groove, which is a really solid movie, by the way, but comparing El Dorado in animation, what I say, and animation wise, El Dorado is far more better because of that fluidity, because of that rotoscope like tendencies we see in the film. And not only that, the colors matched it, you know? And right. yeah, with Emperor's New Groove, it was very simple. It was very laid back. And we can give compliment to that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but James Baxter is a man of animation eloquence. And I feel like he needs to put out more than he needs to put out because every time I see him post, I'm like, I need more. Like, <laughs> I need more. Like, you need to put out an Instagram or something to put out more work and, you know, just to see how you do things. But it's like, you know, he's just chill. But Mm -hmm. that's my downside on him. It's just like, do more, put out more so I can learn more. So, yeah. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Go follow James Baxter on everything and make sure that he puts out more stuff. I guess I want to say, like, don't harass him. But also, James Baxter, if you're hearing this, you got to put out more. (laughs) <laughs> you gotta put out more, dude. Yeah, we're gonna go to a quick break and we will be right back. Hey there. If you're listening to this podcast ad, first off, you've got great taste in the podcast. Kudos to you. But secondly, you probably like movies, watching them, thinking about them, analyzing them, and reviewing them. And while the tales we see on the big screen do merit discussion, I think that's only half the story. Why do we see so many sequels instead of original films? What determines which films get sequels in the first place? Is there more to the directors making a big hullabaloo about seeing their films in theaters than on streaming? And beyond the obvious social good, why is making more diverse films important? The answer to all these questions and more can be found on my podcast, The Box Office Watch, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. For better or worse, Hollywood is the business, and which films are profitable and which aren't uh, determines what kind of films get greenlit and which ones don't. Each week, I go over the box office charts to understand which films are on that path to profitability and which ones aren't, as well as to understand any major headlines in the movie industry that might affect those bottom lines. I help you understand industry terms like exhibitor splits, multipliers, and per theater averages. And honestly, the story of how a film grew wings and flew at the box office or fumbled around and flopped can sometimes be more engrossing than the actual story on screen, in my opinion. Box Office Watch can be found on all major podcast stores, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. 
Make sure you subscribe, and I hope to catch you there. And remember, our watch goes on. Welcome back, everyone, for part two of our Kicking with Kendrick episode. We are, I guess, now going to be talking about Paranorman, which I guess was mentioned earlier, is one of Laika's, I guess their second movie? Their third yeah, movie? it's their second, second, second right one. After. Second movie? Yeah, so... It seems that, like, um, when, when a new animation company, like, gets revealed, it seems like they take, like, a number of years to make a second one, because you get, you got Toy Story released in 95, and then A Bug's Life came out in 98, and then you got Ice Age coming out in 2002, and then Robots came out in 2005. I don't know why there's such a big gap. <laughs> I noticed too, you said there's a big gap, but also both of those gaps were exactly three years. Guess when Coraline came out? It was in 2009, right? Yep, and Paranorman came out in 2012. It's always three years to make three a Three-year gap. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, that's freaking nuts. <laughs> it, like, especially when a new animation company just comes out of the water, mm-hmm. you know? So like... Pierre, you want to tell us what this movie's about? Yeah, so Paranorman's basically, it's a movie about a young boy named Norman, obviously, who uh, is experiencing, I guess this is almost a, a sixth sense type of deal. He can see ghosts, mm-hmm. who, uh, and these ghosts are only on Earth because they have things that need to be solved or something like that. Yeah, um, I think it said, like, either if they die in a really violent way or if they have unfinished business. Yeah. Norman also has an uncle who he never talks to, who also has a similar gift. Mm -hmm. The movie is mostly about Norman coming to terms with who he is as a person and trying to find a way to get along with the people around him despite his abnormalities, if that makes sense, such as talking to the dead. Also, uh, the town is being attacked by zombies, and he's the only one that can talk to them, so he's the only one that can save the town. That is also a plot point, yes. <laughs> a really solid one at that. Yeah, yeah, it, it was pretty. Rough. But yeah, uh, what any? What are your thoughts, uh, Johnny? What, what did you think of this movie? When I first saw it, I think it was around 2020. I was actually on the Oscar death race. The first time I was around the server, I actually saw it on the server. I think someone was streaming it, and I was like, "Oh, Paranormal! I'll watch it." Because, like, Paranorman was a big thing. When I was 12 years old, that movie was getting constant commercial success. Mm-hmm. And just seeing it, it like, there was a battle between Paranorman and Frankenweenie. Those movies were really, like, getting combative when it came to, like, commercials and stuff like that. But Paranorman was the one that I saw the most. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is a very interesting film because it is the second film after Coraline after that success I was like oh that's cool and then like you know seven years later never watched it so that was my first time watching it on stream and as I was watching it I was very amazed of that whole plot that you just said about it it it, it was really Something I was like, oh, maybe that's, maybe maybe there's more animated films like that that I haven't seen, and I didn't even know what Paranorman was literally about. I just saw zombies popping out of nowhere, you know. Yeah. 
but I didn't know that Norman can actually speak to the dead. And I was like, that's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool gift. And then having that story surrounding of him knowing that he can speak to ghosts while his parents and his sister, you know, not believing it. Mm-hmm. And it, and the family, it's, it's, it's getting more, more difficult over time. That's what pushes the plot line, you know, but how I feel about the movie, I think it's a really solid movie. It's something that I recommend to a lot of people, especially, you know, if you want to watch a Halloween flick, you know, that's one of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, one of the directors for this movie, Chris Butler, I heard, I I was reading up a little bit on the history of this movie and he said that he'd thought it was always interesting how traditionally zombie movies have like zombie movies are almost always social commentary, like day of the dead, dawn of the dead. Those are the ones I can think of, but like all zombie movies have that element of social commentary. And he thought I can do this, but for kids going through a difficult time. So, like, he, like, adapted that into a movie, you know, about a kid who doesn't fit in, which, sure, there's a lot of movies about kids that don't fit in, but this is, like, yeah, one of the of better ones. I don't I don't know exactly how to say it. It's just, this is just, like, a really good version of that story. Yeah, it, it's like two stories colliding. Like, you got one story that could be its own, and you have another story that could be its own as well. But mm-hmm. if your idea like sparks you mesh that together and what do you get you know sort of a masterpiece in your own in your own written paper and mm-hmm. you know there was a lot of ingenuity when it comes when it when it came to this film when it <laughs> you know of its environments and just hearing Casey Affleck you know mm-hmm. just talk you know I've never you know I was like why is Casey like this like I was looking at the cast I was like Casey Affleck why are you in mm-hmm. here? And then when I heard his voice, I was like, I can't take you serious. <laughs> it's like, I can't take this character or anything that you do serious. Cause like both you and Ben, your brother, you both sound alike, but you sound like more of a squeaky toy. <laughs> so like, I couldn't take Casey Affleck's character serious, but it was fun. So Pierre, what about yourself? What, what did you think of this movie? Just in general? Um, I thought it was really solid. I was I liked a lot of the voice acting, surprisingly. I don't usually care too much about voice acting, but I thought they made like a lot of cool choices. Mm-hmm. And I also really liked how the story accumulated into the climax, if that makes sense. I thought there was like a lot of interesting twists that kind of kept me guessing. I love that scene where what it, it looks it looks like the zombies are attacking the villagers or the town and then it's actually like the zombies are getting destroyed by the townspeople and they have to run away. I thought that was such a cool like play on on that scenario. I mean it actually and it makes a lot more sense because the the stereotypical zombies are extremely slow and like mm-hmm. stupid. Like of course it, it wouldn't be that hard to fight them, I think. It all accumulated into like a really satisfying climax, I guess. That was very Yeah, it had a really interesting climax and a really good plot twist. And from what I've noticed, when I com- I think I kind of compared, because I w- obviously I watched Kubo first, and watching Paranorman at that time now, I noticed that there is a lot of lessons that are sort of laid back for kids, you know, to learn in everyday life. 
you know, you know, the biggest lesson I feel like in that film was don't be like the ones who hurt you most, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you take that to heart and you grow as a person, even as a young child, you know, you take that and you uh, apply it to your life. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paranorman, what I feel did really good at was creating that plot twist and, you know, sharing a lesson in between that, you know, and Kubo did the same thing, but it was more stronger. In Paranorman, I really like how this movie pays so much attention to little script and dialogue details. Like what you're saying right there, at the very beginning, one of the first things that we hear is Norman's grandmother says to him, I'll bet that if they just talked to the zombies, they could just deal with it. Like it wouldn't be that much of a problem. The zombies wouldn't have to attack. And then later on, several other characters talk to Norman in tones ranging from serious to jokey. Like, what, are you just going to talk to the zombies? And he beats the zombies by just talking to them because that's what he can do. And like, I really appreciated just those little touches of like, by the way, the lesson is here. You can watch this movie and completely miss the point, I guess. But it's there and, like, it's subtle, but, like, it's not hidden. Yeah. There's a lot of very mature themes that are kind of interweaved into it. Also some really mature jokes, too, I thought were were surprisingly, Yeah, that that little boy, his friend, he was just doing way too much. (laughs) Yeah. He was wild. Yeah. I, I think from what I remember, there was a scene where he was watching something. He was watching like girls work out. Freeze framing mom's aerobics tapes. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, we're boys. We <laughs> we look at certain stuff to benefit our own needs. So I was like, I can't even get mad at him. Like, cause <laughs> <laughs> I can't even get mad at the boy for doing it. You know, yeah, as a as really... a parent, I would be as a dad. I would be like, "Don't let your mother know what's going on. This <laughs> is just between you and me." So yeah, this this movie's really hashtag. Related. It's so funny. <laughs> it, it's it's so funny how these characters are so fleshed out, mm-hmm. and especially with Norman in the beginning. You know, you see him as being the most relatable of all. You know the kids that we that we quote unquote want to be, but who we are internally, we're just sometimes this quiet, shy, you mm-hmm. know, person that has all this stuff in in our head. And talking to the dead was kind of one of those features that you know he had, and in a way, it wasn't. You know, him talking to the dead is not. At first, it was portrayed as like a abomination where it actually is kind of a gift. So Yeah, yeah, it makes him like it makes him special, but not like in such a way that he doesn't need everyone else. Like everyone in this movie, they, they all need each other. But like that that gift of talking to the dead at the beginning, it's portrayed as like to everyone around him it's like this makes norman weird and people don't like him because of that but like it's not actually a bad thing it's actually like like you said a gift it's it's something that really ends up benefiting everyone around him because he learns how to use this gift yeah and not only that you know it also gives us the lesson that if you have a weird quirk 
like the speaking to the dead was a, sort of an exaggeration of that. But yeah. if you have a quirk of your own design, embrace it. Embrace yeah. that weirdness, you know. It, it's mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, most people and me as how how I would see it, you know, in myself, it was kind of hard to be, you know, myself growing up. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I look at Norman, I was just like that kid where I had so many bees flying over my head of so many ideas and just, you know, so many ideas of how I would present myself to a person and how they would see like, oh, you're weird, but that's pretty cool, mm-hmm. you know, but... It, it it brings awareness to that struggle and it also brings awareness of how you deal with it. Yeah. And, and like I appreciate the movie for doing that. This is a movie that I like to just recommend to everybody because as I said early on, like this is probably one of my favorite animated movies. I don't know about my favorite, but it is it's easily my favorite from Laika, and it's one of my favorite animated movies I've ever seen. If we can rank like Laika films like for my list it would be yeah like my list would be now because i haven't seen the box trolls or the missing link i can't really give a consensus but when it comes to the films that i did watch which was the following three i would say kubo Coraline, and paranormal because Coraline was yeah Coraline was a film that creeped me out but in a way where i remembered it it's a very dark film, and mm-hmm. it turned into a really interesting kaleidoscope. When I rewatched Paranorman for, for this episode, it was clear to me, but I always had in my mind that just because this is the context, I guess, or like the tone is a little bit similar to Coraline, I always thought that this was Henry Selleck as well. Now, it's directed very differently from Henry Selleck, and I noticed yeah, that Yeah, he is a very... Yeah, the, yeah, the different directing styles of those two guys. He's, like Henry, from what I've seen, he's more. I mean, obviously, he he's known for working with Tim Burton, you know, mm-hmm. from, from years in the beginning of the stages of him being in that. I think they were both in that Disney Animation program in in the nineteen seventies. So they kind of have a bit of a history with each other. So mm-hmm. working with Tim Burton, it seems like he kind of worked. Well, not necessarily worked beside him, but like kind of worked around him and kind of learned how Tim Burton's style, you know, was evolutionized, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And with Henry, it, it was more quiet. He's more of a quiet thriller-based animation director, director, and that's what I appreciate. Something that we need yeah. in films like that. Yeah. So the reason we're talking about this movie today is, of course, because Anna Kendrick's in it. Pierre, I wanted to ask you first off, what did you think of Anna Kendrick in this? I thought she was really good. I liked her a lot. Um, I think her character was maybe a little too stereotypically written, I think. And I think that made it a little tough for me to completely buy the the character arc, if that makes sense. Because it happened, Mm -hmm. I felt really quickly. Um, But I thought she was a really fun character. Um, She could have easily been extremely annoying, but I think Anna Kendrick brought a certain warmth to it. Like she was very able to believably change the character from being really mean to a nice person, if that makes sense, without like completely altering the character, even though it felt like the writing kind of led that way, if that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, she was she was really fun. I liked her. Going by what Pierre said, that character, especially giving that character to Anna Kendrick, and the voice range that she has, you know, it did seem like uh, your every everyday stereotypical older sister that your little brother or sister has this, like I said, a, a weird quirk that they have and they don't understand it. You know, they have a status to follow. They have a, yeah. you know, they have like this reputation that they need to have in high school and stuff like that, but they really don't. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but as we see the character grow, you know, Anna Kendrick's performance in that film is pretty solid. Yeah, I guess um, I hadn't really thought about it, but like she actually does bring her own, well, her, her character brings her own like unique skill set because at the very end, she's she's a cheerleader and at the very end she like literally just cheers for for norman and that's what gives him the final push to you know do the little ending thing he needs to do which i hadn't really thought of it like that but she does have her own unique skill set she brings technically yeah yeah i guess like as much as i hate so i want to preface this by saying so far of the movies we've watched i haven't explicitly disliked anna kendrick in anything yet but this is like one of the weakest I thought because like she was well cast. Yes. She did bring stuff to that performance, but like, I didn't think that she had that much of a presence and like, I would be welcome to be proven wrong on this, but I don't think this necessarily had to be Anna Kendrick in this role. And like, Mm -hmm. she, she was fine. But like, I think this is one of the ones where I personally thought that, she sort of just didn't have that much of a presence. And a lot of that is just that she's a very minor character. And the rest of it is that, like, I don't think it had to be her that did this. Like, it could have been another actress. There have been plenty of roles we've talked about where, like, yes, it had to be Anna Kendrick. And I don't think this is one of them. Yeah, well, the way that I looked at it, it was more, it was, I just thought of it as a role that she just played, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes voice actors or just even celebrities that do these really good films, they get an opportunity to like, hey, you want to voice a character? You know, and they're like, sure. And I felt like this was just something that she just wanted to do. Yeah. So And like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think yeah. that this actually, uh, we're going backwards in our episode order here. This actually is her first animated movie she was in. Yeah. And in our last episode, when we talked about trolls, I think we both talked about how much like we really liked her in that role. Yeah. Like, that fit it's her. Not, it's not a necessarily easy transition to go from acting live action to voice acting. And she did this transition really well in Paranorman, but having done it once before really benefited her in Trolls because, like, it wasn't super awkward or anything. She'd already done it, and that really gave her the opportunity to really shine in those movies, I think. Do you know that the DreamWorks just... I went to their Instagram, and uh, DreamWorks just literally made a very unexpected announcement. Trolls 3? Trolls 3 is coming out in... It's I believe. Oh, thank God. We'll be done with our series, so that can be an extra episode on the end. Perfect. Because, like, when I, when I looked at that, I was like, do we really need another one, though? <laughs> so, my opinion is yes, absolutely. 
Those movies are way better than people give them credit for. I, I mean, I I'll, I only saw a couple of scenes of Trolls, and I know that Can't Stop the Feeling was literally blasting on every radio station. I do love that song, though, but, you know, just seeing that it was an Oscar nomination blew me away because that song was the hot song of the summer. Mm-hmm. And I really do appreciate how that song was just giving everyone a chance to get up and do stuff. And mm-hmm. the performance at the Oscars, I actually saw the whole show and that's that's the song that they started off with, you know, in that oh, okay. in that show. And it was so good to see Justin Timberlake just do his thing on stage and you see all these actors and these producers and people who are nominated that night just have a good time for the first <laughs> ten minutes. So I, maybe this might prompt me to watch Trolls tonight. I just talked to my sister earlier today. And like, the first thing I did is I woke up this morning, I pulled out my phone. I'm like, hey, Karen, have you seen Trolls and Trolls World Tour? Because you should do that. <laughs> I would say like, judging by how, judging by how everything, like the character designs and animation wise, like tech in the technical side, from what I'm seeing, Trolls really do sell. It sells. And when I was looking at little scenes of World Tour, I was like, "Wow, it's more it's a wider scale. It, it, animation frames look way more solid than they used to be." I'm like, "This is new." And 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 I was watching How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World, and I was looking at that. I was like, "Okay, DreamWorks is improving. Mm-hmm. They're taking more time to make quality films instead of quantity." You know, Mm because there was a year in 2013 where they were just putting garbage out. Like me, like me personally, I really didn't like Mr. Peabody and Sherman or Penguins of Madagascar. I don't even know why Penguins of Madagascar, that film exists. And then after that, the dream was was like, okay, we need to stop putting out films that are sucking. We need to work on Mm -hmm. what we're given. And I think Trolls was kind of like the beginning of that of that rule so trolls started and then we got the boss baby and then we got how to train how to train your dragon hidden world the crew is a new age and then trolls world tour yeah that like everything was kind of like a yearly gap so mm-hmm. that's that's good on dreamworks for doing that and they should keep doing it <laughs> it works mm-hmm. the last thing i gotta ask is uh well m- almost the last thing so, Pierre, uh, where would you put this roughly in Anna Kendrick's filmography so far in terms of her performance and in terms of just this movie in general? I'd say in terms of her performance, I'd actually say it's still pretty high up there. Maybe just not as good as the Trolls one. So better than Twilight, better than everything. I, I'd say like there's Pitch Perfect, Trolls, and then maybe this movie. Mm, okay. Um, what about you? Well, in terms of performance, I would probably put it, uh, I, I think it's fairly low for me in terms of performance. I don't know exactly what, I mean, I'd put it above Elsewhere, probably. No, I don't know, because in Elsewhere, she's like the lead. So she kind of makes or breaks that movie. And mm. I don't know, I think it's fairly near the bottom. And again, it's just because she doesn't have too much to do. I think that like, this is still a really good performance from her. But in terms of... Uh, Sorry to sideline you here, Johnny. We'll get to you in just a second. But in terms of uh, like 
just the movies in general, where would you put this, Pierre? Pretty near the top. I'd say End of Watch is still higher than this, but I can't think of... Wait, there was one... Oh, maybe about Scott Pilgrim level, I'd say. I really like it. I think there's a couple, like... It might be my bias against stop motion. Like, I really appreciate the art form, but it's hard for me to get into, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. that might be why. But yeah, it's definitely, like upper tier top three or four i think that we've seen so far i can't in good faith put this any lower than number one in my list Mm -hmm. so like this is this is the top for me so i guess to extend the question to you johnny you are not limited by only the movies we've talked about on this podcast where would you put this uh in terms of anna kendrick's performance overall and in terms of like movies that she's been in like where would you put this if that makes sense basically what are your top Anna Kendrick movies is what I'm asking the top Anna Kendrick movies that I've seen is kind of Scott Pilgrim is Scott Pilgrim fair enough I actually I enjoyed the whole cast on that film to be honest everyone played everyone played a very interesting role in that film and, mm-hmm. you know, the first pitch perfect, I was like, okay, she has something. But I don't, I think Into the Woods is number one for me, mainly because that was me witnessing the fact that she has, I think we were just speaking to this before, like I was talking about her voice range of singing is really, really good. Mm-hmm. And there is no lie that, you know, she can, she has has pipes and you know like into the woods like that was a very solid role especially in that supporting sense i i appreciated her in that film more so like mm-hmm. into the woods and then scott pilgrim well, with with paranorman as i said before that's that's just anna kendrick seemed like a filler in a way mm-hmm. and i was kind of leaning towards you jeff about like how she was just placed there and just, you know, not being the best. Yeah. So I kind of agree with you on that. She's just a filler. So I would put her literally on where it's kind of in the middle of her, of her filmography. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, I think that basically wraps up our discussion of Paranorman. And thank you so much, Johnny, for imparting on us all of your knowledge of animation. Like, I learned a lot. So thank you. Yeah, I try I try my best to be as accurate as possible because sometimes animation doesn't really have a really big newsletter, but they still have a newsletter regardless of, you know, keeping mm-hmm. updated on stuff and, you know, what to see next in certain films and um if I wanted to add something for this, you know, where Paranorman sits in the stop motion bracket. I yeah. in, in my list if I if I see my letterbox <laughs> I did put it somewhere but it didn't but it doesn't beat chicken run chicken run it's a no brainer I can't it, it I I I'm not going to I'm not going to explain why paranormal doesn't fit or what well, not fit but can't beat it you know but well, like, that's no Ardman is Ardman are basically like the kings of stop motion animation. And in my opinion, and like, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a very controversial opinion. Chicken Run is their best movie. It is. That is literally the the movie that made 
more money for their company and still kind of makes more a little bit here and there. Yeah, so that's their best work. That and Wallace and Gromit and The Curse of the Rare Rabbit. Right. Well, the last thing I have to ask you is where can people, where can listeners find more of you? And is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to promote? You can follow me on Instagram. It is Mr. Pencilhead. It is lowercase. And the things that I'm working on right now, well, for it's like kind of like a student project that I'm doing for a class. I'm pretty much making, uh, it's pretty much an animatic with a six second animation that I did. And I'm right now, next week, I have to kind of finalize it, put it together, kind of, you know, add a little bit more filler storyboards to complete the story. And it's basically about this guy that I created. Um, his name is Don. And he is like a, a book writer. And the scene kind of starts in the middle where he kind of gets a rejection letter and then all of that, you know, stress of getting rejected so many times, he then just, he's known for like taking heights and taking long walks. So after that long walk, he kind of goes in a really bad breakdown episode with himself. And then within that, he's on a mountain and that ledge of that mountain broke. It breaks and, and he's holding on it to dear life and he doesn't know what to do but he reaches to his his neck and he sees his father's necklace because his father died when he was uh, a very young age and he looks at that necklace and kind of prays to you know just see if he would ever you know kind of come back in situations like this and then it pans to like seeing his father as a spirit mm-hmm. he sees his father now and that's that's all I can say from there, you know. That's all I can. Yeah, that that's that's just yeah. pretty much the the whole plot is just you know finding hope in a tough situation, especially with in my own experience in not having a dad. Well, he's still alive, but just not being there for me. Mm. But just just giving the example of just, you know, having a father being there in the first place is something that, you know, what I'm doing is what I needed in situations mm-hmm. like that. So it's pretty much an example well, of that. And, you know, mostly I've just been drawing as well. So that's what you mostly see in my Instagram for. <laughs> I just literally posted something like three hours ago. So Well, we'll we'll link your Instagram in the show notes and like We'll either link your animatic in the show notes, or if you have it published at any point, uh, just right. let me know, and we'll tweet it out or whatever we can do, or whatever we can do. Got you. I appreciate that. Thanks, man. All right. Well, that's gonna be it for us today. Pierre, are you excited for the Christmas episode? That's gonna be our next episode. Yay, Christmas! Perfect singing. Oh yeah, she's on the go. How many actors got that glow? Singing and acting, I don't know. Not even Leo's got that flow. Musicals and movies more. All the talents out the door. We're seeing what she's got in store. Yeah, and it's time to stop the show.